Hi, everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we entertain truly revolutionary ideas. Today is episode number 29, and I'm having on Dr. Chris Burr, who is a specialist in digital technologies and their ethical implications. Today, we will be talking about the ways in which we relate to digital technologies, such as Facebook, such as other social media platforms, and data mining collection, and the impacts they have on our lives, and the way we think about what it means to live a good life here in the 21st century. It's all very fascinating stuff. So thank you so much for tuning in. I'm very happy to have you. I'm very happy to have on our guest, who is also here in Oxford. He works, he is a postdoc at the Oxford Institute, Dr. Chris Burr. I stumbled on his work um, while doing some work with the Internet Institute because this is a deeply, deeply important world of study. You know, internet studies are very new, uh, but very, very important and becoming increasingly important uh, in terms of the way that these technologies impact our lives and have the, po the potential to, as we will be discussing in the podcast today, both enrich and pose risks to, to the way that we do things. So uh, a little bit about today's guest, Dr. Chris Burr. He is a philosopher of cognitive science and a philosopher of technology. His research explores how digital technologies have reshaped our understanding of well-being and the new opportunities and risks that these technologies pose for human flourishing. He has held previous posts at the University of Bristol, where he explored the ethical and epistemological impact of big data and artificial intelligence and completed his PhD in 2017. His research interests include philosophy of cognitive science, artificial intelligence, ethic, ethics of digital technology and AI, decision theory, and philosophy of mind. Uh, I am super excited. We have a really, really lovely, lovely conversation. So I will go ahead and just uh, briefly remind you that you can find this podcast on pretty much any podcast platform. If you cannot find it on the platform of your choosing, do please drop me a line on Instagram or Facebook at Stephanie Ruper. And please, of course, send in inquiries or ideas for guests or what have you. I will always be happy to listen and like, follow, and share because that's what we do when we try to advance these um, nuanced conversations about what it means to be human and what to do about it. So uh, that's us here on this team and me, Stephanie Ruper. And here, very excitedly, is Dr. Chris Burr. Okay. Hi, Chris. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. And yourself? I'm good. It's always fun and interesting for me when I talk with somebody who lives in the same city as me, but we're Skyping. <laughs> I know it's uh, making use of technology and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is correct and something I would expect a philosopher of technology to say. Exactly. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not all just uh, risks and concerns of technology. It can connect people even if they are living in the same city. Mm. Mm, good, yeah. Um, I actually, the Oxford in Internet Institute. You know, when I first heard of that, it's sort of internet studies is all very new. It's kind of kind of new to the world, at least it is to me. Uh, and sometimes when I tell people that it exists, they're like, well, yeah, what, what is internet studies? But there's so, 
so much in the philosophy of technology and in internet and in all of that 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 can be studied there's tons of people working on this right yeah i'm when when i joined the oxford internet institute last year i was um, pleasantly surprised by just the sheer diversity of research interests that are collected within this multidisciplinary department um, it's a very exciting sort of a exciting environment to, for a philosopher to work in. I mean, philosophers have certainly engaged a lot more with multidisciplinary research um, over the last few years and decades, um, but typically from the confines of a philosophy department. Um, and this was my first encounter with a genuinely multidisciplinary department where you've got social scientists, philosophers, computer mm. scientists, even experimental psychologists all working under, well, three roofs, but under one roof in um, so yeah, so it's a great place to be and a very exciting area of research at the moment. I mean, the Oxford Internet Institute is um, just one of many um, departments and institutes focusing on this. Okay, so so generally speaking, what is your area of of work? What what is it that you're that you're doing at the institute? Sure. So broadly, I look at both the philosophical and the ethical consequences of this, um, this kind of recent trends to embed technology specifically new forms of technologies such as artificial intelligence and machine learning internet of thing type devices into so many areas of society that mm -hmm. it has just impacted loads of er loads of different aspects of our lives and the way that society functions and because of the rapid rise and use of um, digital technologies, there have been wealth of uh, impacts um, on, on how, we, how we engage with the world, how we engage with each other. And many of these impacts have philosophical and ethical significance. Mm -hmm. um, so my research looks very broadly at trying to unpack those philosophical and ethical um, issues trying to um, make perhaps sort of prescriptive recommendations for policymakers based upon um, frameworks like the theory. Mm -hmm. I also like to try and understand um, some of the theoretical things driving a lot of the scientific research. I think it's important um, looking at how um, our, our psychology, how our decision making has also been impacted by the way that we integrated technology into so many different features of our lives. So mm -hmm. I guess that's, that's a very, very broad area and it sort of allows me to um, explore many different interests. I'm one of these academics that always has a, is a bit fidgety working on a very specific area for too long. I, yeah. I'm fascinated by so many different, um, so many different areas of research that it's just given me a lot of a very wide berth allows me a lot of uh, sort of space to explore things that fascinate mm. so you yeah you mentioned machine learning and artificial intelligence and and people generally know that these kinds of things exist but in what ways would we recognize them right i think it's very interesting we often talk about how like the ai revolution is coming right but there are many ways in which it's it's kind of already here in our facebook feeds and stuff like that so um what sort of technologies are you actually that we use are you actually looking at 
so there's not a specific it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a bit hard to answer this because i mean often when we use these these terms they they capture a pretty vaguely defined set of technologies mm -hmm. and often the ones that sort of grab um, people's attentions or sort of dominate the, the headlines are the ones that um, we have the most engagement with. So you talk about, say, like news feeds on social media or smartphones. These are technologies that everybody has a very familiar, very personal understanding of. Because in the case of social media on our smartphones, we spend a lot of time in our days using them. But it's also important to look at some of the less glamorous and some of the less interesting um, sides of technologies. This could mm. be, and I don't want to get into the boring topics or, uh, too, too early into our conversation, but the way in which um, how we organize and read and store data in various domains, such as healthcare, leads to um, interesting challenges. Um, mm. There's a lot of focus on, say, the sort of the, the types of technology that get a lot of attention in the media, or maybe even in the sort of Hollywood films, right? Robotics is always a very glamorous, quite exciting form of technology. And indeed, there are some fun, fascinating advances. But I guess my job is also to look at some of the less interesting ones, but which may have actually the greatest impact on overall health and well-being. Um, but also potentially pose the greatest risks to health and well-being. So sorry, that's a little bit of a um, that doesn't that's not a direct answer. But the the, the, the simple fact is that um, I I'll go wherever the, um, the sort of the, the the biggest philosophical ethical challenges seem to be. So I won't necessarily focus mm. specifically on one. Right. Um, previous research has focused a little bit on social media, smartphones, what, um, what I think we, we refer to as um, recommendation systems, which is, again, is a broad term, but we can get actually onto that later on. Okay. Okay, good. So, yeah, I do want to get to that. So to get there, let's start with more, something a little bit more basic. There is a sense in which these technologies are changing the way that we think about our well-being. So how have we traditionally you know, thought about our well-being and how is that being sort of shifted by our technologies? So, yeah, so there's two questions there, like how we traditionally thought about well-being and then how has it changed? And both are very complex questions. Um, how we traditionally thought about well-being, um, it depends on whether or not we consider this a formal sort of study of well-being as a sort of phenomenon in its own right versus uh, just general sort of folk understanding of well-being. Um, and both of those aspects have a diverse set of answers to them. So on the sort of the formal hand, you have philosophers, psychologists, economists, medical um, researchers, all looking into different facets of well-being, putting forward sometimes competing theories of well-being, what well-being actually is, why we should value it, um, why, sorry, what the, the determinants of well-being are. So psychologists, for example, um, or economists as well, may look to try and see whether or not things like um, 
financial income or social connections or health, physical health as well, lead to greater feelings of well-being. Whereas philosophers may want to try and understand what actually well-being is and why we should care about it, why is it valuable. Um, so there's lots of answers to that, and I don't know if there's really much consensus, unfortunately. There are certain synonyms which you often hear in relation to well-being, things like happiness, quality of life, welfare, utility. These are all terms that kind of get lumped into the formal study or the academic study of well-being. And then there's, of course, considerations such as the morality or the spiritual side of well-being that um, other people wish to, to sort of consider um, as an important component. And whether or not this does a good job of systematizing or capturing our intuitions about well-being mm. is, again, a tricky, tricky matter. Um, many people will have different views on what well-being is and in fact one of the one of the, the sort of one of the main agreements among philosophers is that um, well-being requires some form of subjectivity in the sense that uh, at least it's, again, I'm saying some consensus of course there's agreement <laughs> but uh, they, at least it, uh, there's at least broad agreement that um, an individual has a right to sort of choose what is valuable in their own life, what makes their life good for them. And because of this subjectivity, when you look to sort of folk conceptions of well-being, you see a plurality of views across different cultures, across different times. Um, in ancient Greek philosophy, morality, as I said, was very, very important and almost uh, an inseparable component of what it meant to live a good life. Uh, mm. That's still the case in modern times is another matter. On to your second question, how is technology shaping? The sort of the, the simple and somewhat uninteresting answer is that technology may be impacting our well-being either negatively or positively. <laughs> okay. In the sense that um, there may be certain technologies that we have developed and integrated into our lifestyle that may be negatively or positively contributing to our well-being. So in that sense, there's been a, a shift. But I'd say the more interesting question, which I don't yet have a particularly strong answer to, is whether or not our conceptual understanding of what it means to live a good life um, in 2019 has actually changed. Whether or not technology has changed how we actually value and evaluate what it means to live a good life. Um, so less about whether or not we have at a sort of a psychological level higher or lower levels of well-being but at a more philosophical level whether or not the concept itself has changed as a result of technology um, that's a question i'm sort of actively exploring do you on it are a little less certain than i'd like them to be okay so i also find that to be a very interesting idea and of course there's a lot of complexity to it but do you have sort of a general sense or some ideas within that realm that are sort of standing out to you right now in terms of you know what sort of changed about our ideas about the good life so one thing that i think will have to be factored in is that well-being um, because of the way that technology has 
not just connected us to so many different people on the planet, but has also changed our relation to the our relationship to the environment. Um, and I'm sort of remaining neutral on whether or not those changes have been positive or negative. Some, I think you could make an argument either way. So in the case of how we relate to one another, as we mentioned earlier on, we're speaking via technology, yet we live in the same city. Um, we um, often connect with our friends via Facebook. Um, whereas I recall not too long ago that I would routinely call my friends, um, speak to them on the phone. Um, so the way in which we to engage with each other has changed. I think there are both positives and negatives to that. And yet most psychologists will agree that a fundamental component of well-being is um, our social connections, that we get a huge amount of uh, value from uh, meaningful and engaging social connections. So technology definitely has um, wedged itself in um, as a, an important and non-neutral mediator in those those social connections um, for ill or for good. I, I don't quite know yet how to fully evaluate that. And likewise with the environment, the natural environment as well. I think many people are now um, more aware of environmental issues perhaps than they were, but at the same, which is a good thing of course, um, but at the same time, we may not necessarily spend as much time outdoors as, as we could. Uh, mm. so I think to the extent that our connections to the world and our connections to each other are fundamental to our well-being, technology has certainly changed how we're thinking of and how we value those connections. Um, so I think any change in our concept as a result of technology's influence will have to consider the way in which we understand and engage with each other and the world. Um, so again, I'm afraid I don't have don't have particularly well thought out views on this yet. Um, this is still something I'm actively exploring, but um, I'd say that this would definitely be an area that needs a little focus. I actually i I think that those are pretty pretty specific things, and I find them very important and enlightening. I liked. I liked what you were saying, and I was sort of getting this sense, sort of understanding that our access to these technologies is furthering our reach, right? Our like intellectual reach, the scope of the things with which we can be in contact, but the quality of contact of contact is changed, right? We can touch more, but we're almost more removed from it, right? In terms of you're talking about the environment. And I think that that's I think that that's worth not having a precise answer yet because it seems to be a really enormous phenomena to look at. Agreed. And one thing, I don't know, I don't know what's, uh, what your opinions have been in terms of um, doing these podcasts now with different people for quite some time. One thing that I personally find um, not necessarily frustrating, frustrating would be too strong a word here, but I, I would like to see um, more um, acceptance of uncertainty and uh, a willingness to simply say, I don't know, rather than having this kind of pundit mindset where you have to have an answer to everything. Um, I personally try to be as comfortable as I can with simply saying, I don't know, when I really don't. Um, I think these questions are far too big Far too important for 
for us to be overly confident with 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 our answers and closed off to considering different things. Hmm. Did you know that I'm writing a book about uncertainty and how important it is? <laughs> well, no, but <laughs> not wanting to turn the relationship of interviewer interviewee round, but I would love love to hear about that at some point. If we can. Yeah, well. I'll, I'll, I'll speak to it briefly now because I think it's important and I'm always talking about it. So my listeners know. Um, I really, I really do. I think there's a very similar uh, paradox of sorts to what you're talking about in the technologies, right? Because I think that we live in a world that is more uncertain in many ways than humans have ever had to do that, you know, and that in many ways poses a risk because people obviously don't love uncertainty, generally speaking. But in another sense, it poses an opportunity, right? Because we can, if we play our cards right, as I am trying to do, move more into the space of being able to say, I don't know, and honor it and find it to be something that's important, right? Something that is worthwhile embracing, not something that we should be running away from. So um, I'm, I'm making an argument, basically, what, what you've made and sort of just telling the story of how we got here and what we can do about it. Um, that's my project. Fascinating. I'd like to maybe offline hear more about this. Um, yeah, more, more details. Um, yeah. It's, it's a really, I mean, it's, it's a, I personally think of it as a very important virtue in what, and this is, sort of uh, a nod a nod to a uh, an area in philosophy sometimes um, often known as virtue epistemology that notes how things like intellectual humility is a virtue mm. in its own rights and um, the sort of the, co- the the corresponding vices of um, sort of over certainty or under certainty are problematic for various reasons but intellectual humility requires us to be reflective of our own epistemic states our beliefs and our own attitude mm-hmm. um and if when if we don't have good reasons good evidence for assenting to a belief with strong levels of certainty then the right thing to do would be to say i don't know and to continue discussion debate and exploration such that um you don't close yourself off to, to potential ideas that could be beneficial um, mm. and so but yeah, the, the main point is that I, if I say I don't know, <laughs> I just wanted perhaps to justify um, why I'm saying this. It's something that I wish more people would practice. But Me it doesn't It doesn't exactly sell, uh, sell, sell newspapers or generate clicks. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, so let's circle back. Technology. Um, human connection, nature. Okay, so... I should also have added, sorry, I mean, this is perhaps a, a less novel sense, but I should also have added as a third one to that, the changing nature we have to ourselves, right? So I mentioned um, the changing nature we have to each other, the changing nature we have to the environment. We'll probably get on to this if we start talking about the way in which technology is monitoring, measuring us. But of course, we are also having a different relationship to our self-understanding, our self-identity, and that's really very important. Just to add a third. Yeah. Actually, that's wonderful. I am writing it down. Okay, so yeah, let's do that. Let's talk about our relationship with ourselves and these technologies that that measure us, right? What are they capable? You know, how to what extent can they know us, and what sort of opportunities or risks are there in our relationship with this kind of 
data. And I think you mentioned like recommendations earlier, right? Um, yeah, there's so much work in this, this field at the moment. Mm. Yeah. I mean, healthcare is a very big area, um, very big growth area for um, uh, what I think, for one of, again, for one of a better term, there's lots of different ways of categorizing technologies here, but assistive technologies are a very important growth area in healthcare at the moment. Assist, assistive technologies broadly look at trying to help people understand um, physical illnesses as one example, but also to monitor important um, uh, maybe biomarkers. Um, so, for example, it could be I'm, I'm wearing a smartwatch at the moment that, although mm -hmm. it doesn't work in the UK, in the US allows you to uh, measure heart rate variability. Um, there are plenty of devices that allow you to measure blood glucose levels. A lot of these technologies aren't necessarily new, but they have been refined and made more accessible to a growing consumer base um, because of advances. And there are loads of opportunities with this. I mean, although it's easy to assume that um, everything the big tech companies say is just a matter of PR, clever marketing, and spin to try to sell more products, I think it would be a shame to not acknowledge the huge opportunities that some people have for getting these technologies to help us sort of assist them with managing um, managing their physical health. Um, of course, there is a growing market. For people who don't necessarily suffer with a physical illness but perhaps are more interested in measuring um, certain goals they have for improving their health and fitness so i think everybody will be familiar with uh, fitness trackers that will allow you to sort of figure out whether or not you've hit your personal best in terms of running or whether or not um, you are improving your quality of sleep by measuring, again, heart rate variability, the time in which you go to sleep. So I think a lot of people will have quite a broad familiarity with these types of technology, technologies that try to monitor and measure more objective properties, more objective characteristics of our lives. But I think what will perhaps be more surprising to some people is a growing trend to use these ever-growing ever data sets that are collected uh, from our interactions with technologies to try and infer subjective characteristics about us or, um, or our sort of, uh, information about our mental states or our psychological traits. So some recent research that I conducted at Bristol before I moved to Oxford looked at the way in which our interactions with digital technologies give um, companies and organizations information about a large range of mental states and psychological traits. And I probably won't be able to remember all of them off my head, I'm afraid. Um, but just to give you an illustrative example, this could be um, properties such as our affective or emotional states, our mood, information about our personality, information about our political, sexual, religious orientations, information about various psychopathologies, um, including um, uh, information about whether or not we're prone to depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. Um, there's a growing list of ways in which the information, the digital footprints as they're sometimes described, 
we leave behind when we interact with technologies can actually be used to infer with admittedly varying degrees of accuracy depending upon the domain information about more personal more private um, traits or mental states about us um, and the fact is is that as i said that the degree of accuracy and the degree of reliability or even validity of these methods is certainly questionable um, and definitely in many cases not at a stage yet where it could be used in a clinical setting but as we try to show in our paper that doesn't mean we shouldn't necessarily be concerned or should necessarily focus on this because many companies are using this information for the purposes of advertising or marketing um, so they there's studies that show how information about our personality traits can be useful for um, targeting certain advertisements to us and that may help generate uh, a high level of engagement with the advert um, but of course there are also concerns about whether or not this uh, information is um, being used in an appropriate manner or even with the user's informed consent so admittedly that was a very long answer to your question but i wanted to try and give some indication of just how how large a set of possible characteristics or information about us as, as individuals is, is now possible using these technologies and I didn't say what are, what interactions allow this information to be inferred, but we can, we can discuss that if you want. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, actually, I, that that would be great. Something that I have put a little bit of thought into something is, uh, you know, we now have these privacy laws, at least in in Europe, right, where you have to give your consent for a company to take your cookies, whatever such a funny saying, take your cookies and, um, and, and use that data. But I feel like the act of no learning about these things and the way that they're presented, you know, there's a pop-up on your screen and there's content you want to get to and people probably just click, right? Everybody just clicks. Okay. Right. Nobody goes in to manage their privacy settings and, and we have the opportunity to, but I imagine that for the sake of convenience, you know, we don't. And that's, I don't know, that's, that's very interesting. And so, yeah, if you could talk a little bit about the ways in which these data sets are made, right, and our, our consent, how it's involved in them it would be interesting. So I'll, I'll place a sort of, uh, I'll begin by saying I'm not a legal specialist, but there is um, someone at the Oxford Internet Institute, Sandra Vakta, who does actually look directly at the, the GDPR the regulation that you're referring to, um, specifically in connection with the inference of these personal or private traits. Um, so for, for any of your listeners perhaps interested in the legal consequences of um, matters like con consent and what actually, uh, we, what protections we are actually uh, Granted, I'd, I'd point, I'd direct you, your listeners to, to her work. Um, one thing I will say, though, about consent is that you're right. The way in which we 
and sort of engage with these little pop-ups, these privacy notices, unfortunately gives away perhaps too much consent in, we're, we're sort of perhaps meeting the, the legal criteria of opting in by clicking, yes, I agree. But I think what's more important is that it's not consent in that manner, but is also informed consent. And this is where I think um, there's a larger concern that needs to be addressed because when we when we consent to one purpose and uh, giving our data away for one purpose, the fact is we may may um, we may be allowing our data to be collected um, through access one service, for example. There's no guarantee that that data set will not allow further information to be inferred at a later date. Um, the GDPR tries to capture this to some extent by showing how consent ties to a use case or um, is only granted for a specific period of time. But again, I think there are issues with this, but I'll defer to the legal expert on that. Um, so in terms of the data sets, this, this could be, I mean, do you want me to, to, sorry, was your question asking me to try and get into sort of explain like the methodology behind what's going on here? Just, sorry, just so I know how to tailor the answer. So when you were asking me to talk about the data sets, was it more about what they allow or is it more about the information that's being collected? Or was it a broader question about um, the, sort of the concerns about how we're, how our interactions give rise to these big data sets? Just so I know how to tailor it. Um, yeah, let's start with how our interactions give rise to these data sets. Okay, so let's, let's, let's take a specific example here. So um, social media, um, Facebook, we talked about news feeds, for example. When, when you log on to Facebook, um, you leave a lot of information immediately behind um, that can can also be used to identify you because um, when you when you click on a particular website, you're leaving information such as your IP address, uh, sort of an identification of the computer or the device you're using. Um, but in addition to this, the type of device you are using, whether or not you're accessing it from Mac or PC, an iPhone, an Android, a particular device is also left. These are often required for technical reasons. Um, but can also give a lot of information about you away. Um, there's been there have been stories showing how you, whether or not you access a site on an, an iPhone versus an Android changes the way that the content is displayed to you, say on travel booking websites. And the assumption people who use an iPhone versus an Android device are more likely to pay a higher rate, a higher higher amount for for a holiday. Mm. So there's information about the type of product you're using. But then going back to the Facebook example, when you're using Facebook, there are certain actions that you take which can also be quite informative. So one study showed that the things you choose to like, so certain posts that your friends uh, may put on their own Facebook pages that will show up in your newsfeed, whether or not you choose to like certain content from your friends or from um, more public posts, also gives information about you. So one study in 2013 um, by a group in Cambridge that um, was caught up in the general Cambridge Analytica scandal. They, they didn't work with Cambridge Analytica, but what the work they did I think was quite influential. 
in terms of what Cambridge Analytica did. What they showed is how the types of um, content you choose to like, so the action of clicking a button on Facebook, reveals personality information about you. So whether or not you're um, higher or lower in a trait known as neuroticism or higher or lower in a trait known as openness. Um, this is now known by the acronym of OCEAN, so openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. These are five personality traits. And depending on what you click on on Facebook, We'll give you and we'll give someone who is interested in in this uh, the, these interactions information about what personality characteristics you display. Um, equally, whether or not you choose to type something on Facebook, there are machine learning algorithms now that can try to understand the content of what you type, and it doesn't necessarily just have to be what you post. Facebook also, I don't know if this has changed, but um, I think recent, at least up until recently, um, Facebook also tracked what you posted but chose not to actually, sorry, what you typed but chose not to post. Um, this can be informative about the role of self-censorship. Wow. Um, but then when you do choose to post, the content you leave, leave behind in your text can be analyzed by machine learning algorithms to detect things from whether or not you're happy or sad. There's lots of psychological information we leave um, in the types of uh, words we choose to, to, to show on Facebook. Pictures give information equally about um, us. One study showed that the types of photos you post on Facebook or even on Instagram can give information about whether or not you're um, depressed or anxious. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's also studies that show how the types of friends we're connected to on Facebook, the, the number of friends, the amount of time we spend on Facebook, all of these interactions can be categorized into so many different ways and then used to infer lots of different things. And of course, Facebook have access as well as other social media, have access to all this information, um, building ever increasing data sets which can be used to infer so many different things about us. And when I am when I express concern about informed consent, of course, we consent to this as a matter of actually accessing the social media site in the first place. And of course, Facebook released new um, privacy policies quite regularly, uh, new sort of terms of agreement that users have to choose to, otherwise they can't access the service, which is somewhat coercive. It's a matter of like, you either agree to these terms or you don't use our service, but Many of us will understand the fear of uh, missing out or fear of sort of not being on these very important social media sites, social media platforms. Um, so we have to agree to these terms and service, and yet I don't think many people will fully have, um, will have a good understanding of just the, the sheer amount of information that's left behind and what can be done with that. I was myself shocked to see all these different ways that our information can be used to learn more about us. And it's only growing every day. There's lots of conferences with computer scientists trying to figure out more and more ways to, to mine our information to predict more and more mm -hmm. exotic things about us. Okay, so we obviously don't have time to talk about all of those things. Um, <laughs> that, may, that may already have been too much in terms of taking up a little time, but no, 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 no. That was it's all very important. Um, so you said that you were personally shocked, right? What What are some 
just to show us the extent to which our data is used, are there, there are a few things that come to mind that sort of demonstrates the, the reach of this data mining? Well, so the example I think that um, I gave a moment ago that um, the photos we choose to post can be used to infer information about whether or not we're depressed or anxious. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I want to make sure that I have a caveat here that the, the reliability and the accuracy and the validity of these, these processes is by no means perfect. Um, but the fact is, is that that's concerning in its own right because these companies don't gather this information just for the sake of it. They're not looking to try and get as much information about us just so that they understand us. They obviously want to take actions based upon this. Um, and taking an action based upon something as sensitive as the, the mental health or the mental well-being of a user, when there's a risk that the inference that is made could be unreliable. So, for example, um, maybe the, the way that um, one user interacts with a social media platform, maybe it kind of gives rise to this kind of prediction that there's a good chance, like a 50% chance they suffer from a severe depression. That still means there's a 50% chance they don't. And depending on the actions that are taken, there could be both positive or negative consequences to those. It may be a positive thing if um, some information is left behind that encourages that user who is suffering from depression to seek help. But equally, even if they are suffering from depression, being nudged by um, an advert on social media could equally be a, a concern that because the user may feel as though their privacy has been violated because they weren't aware that this information they were leaving behind gives rise to this. I could very easily think of a user who now, having seen this, goes, I mean, what am I doing on this social media platform that makes such an imprint possible? Do my friends, my family know about this? And then, of mm -hmm. course, there's the fact that these adverts being shown to people who aren't at high risk of mental health issues could go, um, could sort of be concerned that they are and start looking into it and actually um, over-diagnose or self-diagnose in ways that are perhaps um, unhealthy, whereas they should maybe seek, um, seek guidance mm -hmm. from, from the professional. So these, these that's just one, one concern. Um, I, I, again, don't want to get into sort of all the possible ways, but hopefully that's at least a flavor of of some of the concerns that arise. And there, like I said, there are studies that show that there are plenty of people interested in this. Um, of course, there are opportunities. I do not want to deny there are opportunities to do that, but there are also lots of people who are. That's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't know that about the photos. Uh, we, we talked about consent a little bit earlier, and I want to make sure we get to this before we wrap up. Uh, but something that's, I think, at least tangential to this idea of consent is how unaware we are of how addictive these pretty much any sort of right pretty much any sort of technology that we interact with is kind of designed to keep us keep using it right because that's profitable uh, and and so there's a sense in which almost similarly I actually um, the director of the Center for Humane Technology likened a feed 
or told me that the feed was designed sort of off of the design of slot machines, right? There is, there is a sense in which uh, technologies are designed in similar ways to casinos. <laughs> um, and so what sort of implications are there for our use of these types of things, given that they, like our interest, our self-interest is not necessarily their self-interest. Yeah, we have to be careful of this, but again, it is also important to, I mean, language is very important here. Um, I've spoken about the possibility of um, behavioral addiction in relation to a lot of these, um, these technologies in the past. And I think it's very, I, I think we can all see certain behaviors in our own life that um, are concerning, but whether or not it is actually helpful to talk about this in terms of addiction, I, I'm, I'm actually not so certain about anymore. Yeah, I agree. Um, there, of course, are risks of addiction, and I think this will probably be more of a concern for very vulnerable users. Um, whether or not it's right to refer to it as addiction in the general population is problematic for a number of reasons because it comes back. It comes down to how we sort of how we're categorizing um, digital technologies and, and indeed our interactions with them. This has been um, this has been a sort of a, a big point of discussion here in the UK because of the role of screen time um, with screen time for adolescents. Um, there's been a lot of concern that too much screen time for adolescents leads to lower well-being, but people, um, including some research at OII, are pushing back on that, saying, "What on earth do you mean by screen time?" As well as challenging the nature of the empirical research that underpins it, because mm. we can all think of ways that we use our screens for very positive things that will contribute to our overall well-being, and simply saying that. Um, looking on your phone and finding out that you've spent two hours on YouTube doesn't necessarily tell you whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. For example, you could have spent two hours on YouTube um, learning new recipes. Um, you could have spent two hours on YouTube, YouTube learning to play um, a new musical instrument. Um, you could have spent two hours on YouTube watching mindless videos that are just procrastinating, are just forms of procrastination that aren't helpful at all. So screen time as a term itself is very unhelpful. And then even if we focus on particular subsets of users of the population, such as adolescents, for whom there is a natural concern over um, their development and their well-being, unfortunately, the science actually isn't, doesn't really support um, as much of the concern as I think some people have expressed. So I'm cautious about the use of addiction. Um, but the, the general concern you raise about whether or not we are using technologies in alignment with our own goals, I think is, is important. Um, and I think the best thing here is that people need to be a bit more self-reflective, but that doesn't necessarily mean technology can't help with that. So the, the new features that Apple, Google have been incorporating for smartphones telling people um, how much they're using their devices can be used really constructively. 
um, but it requires engagement, active engagement from the user to sort of sit down and go, right, what are my values? What are my goals? Are these um, particular services that I'm engaging in conducive to that, or are they detrimental um, to my goals? But it requires the user in each individual to identify their goals, identify their desires, identify their beliefs, and then think about directly how they want to track and monitor that. Um, technology can play a very valuable role in that, um, but of course it can also distract us if we're not engaged, if we're not mindful about how we use the technology. I really appreciate that we have, I, I try to be very intentional about my use of various technologies and social media platforms. I still find it very hard to stop scrolling, you know, like, uh, especially if I have something important to do <laughs> or um, like a hard task at hand, like it's, it's still challenging. And I, it's just an interesting challenge that I think we have facing us as a species, right? Like, how do that requires a lot of self-regulation and in a sense willpower to try to make our goals work uh with the, with the goals of our machines I, I i fully agree with that point and i don't want my my previous answer to suggest that i think personal responsibility is the only thing that is required here of course mm -hmm. there are many powerful interests that are trying to sort of compete with our own willingness and our own desires to, to interact with technology in more meaningful ways. Um, there are great examples of things known as dark patterns and uh, ways that um, websites are set up or even mobile phone apps are set up to try and lead users towards goals that are simply not in their own self-interest. These could be um, websites making it very hard to cancel accounts. It could be mobile phone apps that use um, various forms of nudges to try and get um, users to spend more in in-app purchases. Um, there are some very concerning uses um, of, people, uh, of, of dark patterns that force users to give up more information, not just about themselves, but also about their, their friends, perhaps. So of course, very powerful interests that are doing their best to try and steer us towards goals that are not aligned with our own self-interest. Um, so I don't want us it to appear as though um, I'm placing the, the burden solely on the responsibility of the individual, because there's also, there's also the fact that to, to actually be able to determine, to sort of self-determine and choose one's goals requires people to have enough time to actually sit down and reflect um, and that's a luxury that some people simply don't have. Um, so I, I, I don't want to suggest that I was only pointing towards that. There are, of course, other, other difficulties and challenges that we need to face here. And that's probably, that probably requires collective action rather than simply meaningful choices. Yes, there's, I find myself mindlessly scrolling through things that more often than I'd like to admit or watching that next episode on Netflix rather. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it is a concern. Um, it's not something that's going to be solved by, solely by an individual. We do need to also think about regulation um, and also understanding the effectiveness of some of these dark patterns or nudges 
whether or not they are as addictive as some people have actually expressed or whether or not we need to focus on other other aspects. Hmm. Yeah, what an amazing thing that as a species, I don't mean amazing with positive valence, I mean amazing, just amazing, that as a species we ended up in this sort of, you know, in this sort of position where uh, we are being presented with things that are very appealing to us all the time, you know, it's fascinating. Yeah, I agree. It's a, as I said at the start, it's a very exciting time to be um, exploring these questions. It's, there are a lot of things that are changing to go back to those three points, how we understand and engage with our own self-understanding and our own self-identity as well as how we engage and interact with each other and indeed we engage with the world. Um, technology, of course, is a central component to that, but there are, of course, wider um, political, economic, environmental concerns as well. So although my, I, I obviously advocate for a stronger emphasis on research into the impacts of technology, that does not mean that I don't also acknowledge that there are wider concerns that we need to also be addressing yeah well I, I think that's i think that's absolutely the point if we don't do the research then we can't address those concerns correctly you know well, technology may may not necessarily be as important as um, for some some aspects for some of these kind of wider global concerns as uh, as we may be making out interesting but equally it may it may be more important than we would previously believed in others so yeah we need we need far more far more research into these matters to fully understand the role that technology is playing. um okay cool well i think that that's a good point to wrap up unless there's is there anything left that you'd like to discuss or that you'd like to leave listeners with or any final thoughts oh a final thought i feel like this is where i'm supposed to say something profound you can also say no and that's <laughs> fine i will simply i repeat my point about being comfortable with saying, I don't know, and I don't know what I'd say here. Um, I, <laughs> I think we should be more comfortable um, choosing, choosing when it's right to say something and choosing when it's right to not say something. And I think it's important not to say something here that I haven't already said. Okay, that's lovely. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been really great. You're welcome. Likewise, thank you for inviting me and having on the podcast. Of course, and to everybody listening, thank you. Uh, thank you as well. This is Dr. Chris Burr. I can link to his academia.edu page um, in the show notes. And I, uh, of course, as ever, will be back very soon. So thank you all, everybody. Thank you again, Chris. Thank you. Take care. 